So ladies and gentlemen, a real treat for you again tonight. This is Robin Horsfall. We've had him on before. He's one of our class, one of the digital heroes of Ukraine. And uh, I've been enjoying his new book called uh, Slava Ukraini, which is like a basically a, a bunch of his LinkedIn posts. And it sort of reads through like chronological order, brings back a lot of memories. How are you keeping, Robin? Yeah, um, I'm doing okay. Uh, I've had a, a, a difficult week getting over what may have been a burst of COVID, but it was it was pretty serious, whatever it was. And I'm just coming out of it. So excuse me if I have to clear my throat every 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 now and then. But yeah, things are going okay. Looking forward to Christmas um, uh, for my own part. But uh, there's always something happening, especially as far as Ukraine's concerned. Yeah, yeah, I'll be over there in a couple of weeks, and so I always feel a bit guilty leaving that country because I never know when I'm going to see if I'm going to see my friends again. And mm. uh, it just seems like the West has given Ukraine enough weapons to keep them fighting, and not to like pull back into defensive positions. And because it just seems like it was, it's, they're given enough weapons so that the maximum amount of Ukrainians are, are, are dying on the front line because um, otherwise they maybe would, would be, be been doing less risky things like trying to break through these miles and miles of mines, you know. Well, I don't think there's any conspiracy to that, really. I think um, the West has given as much as they have. And what this has done is it's actually revealed to the world how poorly prepared uh, most of the NATO nations were for any extended form of warfare. Um, you know, the, the stocks that uh, Europe and the USA to a, a, to a lesser degree had uh, already been, have, have already disappeared. They're manufacturing new stocks now, but they're struggling to keep up. So it's, um, it's a reflection of how lazy and flabby and um, full of hubris uh, NATO had become over the last generation and wasn't really prepared for any kind of long-term campaign in Europe. Um, so we're giving them everything we've got, or as much as we possibly can without compromising our own um, basic security uh, facilities. So it's, um, it's, it, it's a tough place to be. However, you know, while Ukraine is winning the military war, um, at the moment, it's losing a certain amount of the propaganda war, the war of words. And the war of words in any kind of um, long-term conflict is a vital part of the equation. Um, and uh, unfortunately for us, our press are quite happy to spout Russian propaganda on a daily basis in order to uh, work on people's base emotions, which are fear and anger and greed. And um, and uh, do Vladimir Putin's job for, job for him to undermine the confidence of the West in supporting this war against his tyranny. What would you see in the main items of propaganda the West are peddling? Well, they every time Putin comes out and um, makes a, a one of his one of his um, acolytes come out and make a um, statement about the possibility of nuclear war they immediately throw it out there on the front pages. And uh, he says this, he says that, um, with the excuse that, oh, well, yeah, nobody believes him, he's, he's just threatening. But it frightens people. It makes people worry. It makes people give up their uh, easygoing support for right and wrong, for what is happening to Ukraine. And it's there all the time. And uh, I've spoken to several journalists over the past few years about how they behave in regard to 
propaganda. And they will reply and say, well, it's our job to report the news. And I say, no, it's your job to report the news responsibly. And I think that in many cases they're irresponsible because they're only interested in clickbait. They're only interested in driving forward the financial figures of the corporation they work for by scaring people, by frightening people, and they don't have any consideration at all about how their behavior affects the war program and affects Ukraine's chance to, 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 to obtain victory. Sounds like politicians, you know, short-term profit versus long-term security of the, the nation and the surrounding nations. Yeah, well, well it is one of the... Is, I mean, is one of the weaknesses of democracy that we have to negotiate and we have to cooperate and we have to build up momentum and we have to agree on everything. And that's okay. One of our weaknesses, also our greatest strength as well. But uh, when you're up against an autocracy or a dictatorship, then you've got a situation where you're up against an enemy that can make a decision quickly and mobilize a large number of people and control the narrative to his own people. We can't control the narrative to our own people because the press are busy selling Russian propaganda on free of charge. It's, it's not great. Quite a few times on LinkedIn, we see propaganda that's shared by people and I'll often ask them a question that's never answered. It's like, okay, this is you have this view about President Zelensky or corruption or this kind of stuff, but how much time have you spent actually in Ukraine on the ground or even interviewing Ukrainian people? It's not, yeah. it's just scratching an itch and throwing it out there because they, for whatever reason, they don't want to agree with anything their administration is doing supporting Ukraine. Yeah, I had a, I had a big, um, a, quite heated disagreement with um, a journalist uh, who uh, wanted me to comment on um, uh, an investigative story he was doing regarding um, the uh, corruption of uh, material that was being sent to Ukraine and that it was ending up in Africa and it was ending up in strange places. And the inference was that uh, this was institutionalized corruption and that Ukraine was was uh, mis deliberately misdirecting um, product in order for people to get rich. And I said, well, look, you know, it's a war. And in a war, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment is moved on a daily basis and there is going to be theft. It's always going to be the case that there's going to be theft when, you, when you're moving that amount of material. It doesn't uh, imply um, and it doesn't mean that there's um, any kind of institutionalized corruption behind it. It just means that there are thieves involved and there will always be thieves when there's money around. And, um, you know, that, that kind of story, which, again, uh, supports the Russian uh, propaganda system. It feeds into them. And, you, and I, I ask questions. I say, what the hell are you guys doing, doing reporting stories like this when you have absolutely no clear concrete evidence? What you're doing is suggesting something. And then you're undermining the West's ability to support Ukraine in its war. Yeah, I would respect them more if they actually went then themselves, organized aid or whatever, and saw the whole process of their <clears> circle <throat> of connections. So even if there was a lot of um, missing weapons and stuff like that. You know, how much money have you actually given to Ukraine? Have you actually done anything to lift your finger? Because you can, if you don't trust that the aid will get there, at least you can help a few people. You could get some contacts in Ukraine and and um, deliver aid yourself, drive the aid there, and make sure it gets to the. You can physically give it to the people, like yeah. refugees. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Follow it, follow it. Don't sit in Morocco and uh, write a story about it. Follow it. Go down the line. 
see the difficulties, see how hard it is. Uh, watch the food get to the front line. Watch the ammunition get to the front lines. Watch the bodies coming back. You know, that's where they really need to be. And when they do, they should be filming what's going on, not filming themselves, because there's so many journalists now embedded or or otherwise who turn up uh, in, a, in a situation and the camera's on them all the time. The camera's not on the uh, victims of the war. The, ca the camera's not on the soldiers. The camera's not on the action. The camera's on the journalist. So the journalist is there to make a name for themselves sometimes. That doesn't apply to all of them and credit to some of them for being there. But there are those that just want to make a name for themselves. Yeah, and, and the people that don't, for whatever reason, don't like Ukraine, it's almost like they want Ukraine to be to be defeated. And so if Ukraine's defeated, what is the future outcome for the <clears> West? <throat> You're going to have every author authoritarian regime now think that thinks they can get away with land, taking land. You're going to have China and Taiwan, you're going to have um, Venezuela and, and uh, Guyana, you're going to have, uh, the, no one's going to trust that NATO's going to back up anybody, and you're basically living in the 1984, we have all these world powers just constantly at war. I mean, is that a world that people want to live in, that, that are pro-Russian propaganda? People don't think that deeply most of the time. They're mostly involved in paying the bills, getting to work, looking at the electricity bill, seeing how much it's costing, blaming somebody for it. Um, the war in Ukraine is a good way of saying this is the reason my power bill is so high this winter. Um, and that's that's as far as it goes. And the rest of the time, they're, they're picking up sound bites of information from national media, from television, from YouTube. And um, those little pieces of information are what influence them most. Not long uh, tirades about... Um, with statistics about what's going on in the war, they're not going to listen to that. Most of the people are trying to busily get on with their everyday lives and they don't care as much as they'd like to pretend they do. So somebody's got to be out there all the time, banging the drum, banging the drum for Ukraine. Um, Boris Johnson did a terrific job when he was prime minister of leading that particular um, issue. Uh, David Cameron's there now, but I don't see a great deal of... Um, rhetoric from um, Rishi Sunak or his foreign secretary at the moment. I don't see an awful lot of drum banging in Europe either. Um, people are doing the best they can. I'm sure they are, but there's nobody fighting this propaganda war, this war, war of words. There's nobody getting up and beating the drum every single day and saying, we've got to win. We've got to defeat this tyranny, because if we don't, it will be Poland, it will be Latvia, it will be Lithuania, it will be um, pressure on the borders of Germany, it will be Moldavia, Moldavia and, and all the other countries on that eastern fringe again. And, um, you know, we, we watch um, we watch with uh, sort of in kind of disbelief sometimes at the nonsense that is getting sent out there day after day after day and being repeated by Western journalists, which only helps the Russian campaign. It happens in America too. Yeah, some of this, some of the things that are quite extreme in terms of propaganda. I mean, I've, I met a few people, and they'll come up to me and say that Boris Johnson flew in and and told uh, Zelensky not to to negotiate for peace or something like that. Something like they were going, to, they were talking with Putin, but. The the Russians were outside of Kiev massacring people in Butcha and all these kind of places. So. 
what 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 peace could could be negotiated with people like that? You know, if if Russia takes back Kiev, we're going to have another 20, 30 million refugees in Europe, or completely dwarf the, the amount of refugees that are that are there already, and have a total economic collapse. Unless you want to, you know, allow genocide of several million people, because you just cannot trust those those Russian murderers. Ben Hodges has turned around several times over the last two years and said, Europe failed, NATO failed, uh, it was failed deterrence. We failed when they went into Georgia, we failed when they went into Crimea, we failed when Obama drew his red line in Syria. And we gave confidence to the bully to step forward and push. And the thing about um, authoritarian states is when they perceive you as weak, they'll push. When they receive you, perceive you as strong, they'll stay where they are. Now they perceive the West as weak. They also, unfortunately for them, perceived Ukraine as weak. And Ukraine wasn't weak. Ukraine was ready. It mobilized its population against the Russian invasion. It was ready for war with them. It had trained its soldiers. It upgraded its army. And it was ready to hold them. And it's only that that has held back the Russian hordes. Now, Boris Johnson came along afterwards and he used Zelensky's character to motivate the rest of Europe, to get people working behind it. Had Kiev failed in three days, every one of them sit back and on, well, that's really sad, isn't it? But there's nothing we can do. But the fact that the Ukrainians fought and fought and fought, they turned Russia back on the road south from Belarus. They prevented the Russians from holding the, air, the uh, airport outside Kiev. And they defeated the Russian attempt at a coup. And that's where it stopped. And that was the opening, the opening for um, the West to start to support the courage of the Ukrainian people. But they would have equally happily turned, away, turned around and said, ah, oh, well, never mind. What can we do? Um, we're in it now. We're in it. And if we don't win it, we're going to be into another one. And then we're going to be into another one and another one. And Russia will keep pushing. That's what bullies do. It's like playground politics in many ways. They'll hit, I'll hit you if you're weak. I'll nick your sweets. And if you hit me back, then I'll go and pick on somebody else. Yeah, you should never fight. start a fight. You're not prepared to, to finish. And because there's so many Ukrainian men on the front line that are depending on us. We're the ones that are motivated them a lot of the times with their weapons and support. Um, and they look to the UK a lot for leadership, I believe, or motivation. And we can't we can't just abandon them because <clears throat> we find Starbucks more expensive or we're finding it hard to hear at homes. And I do think we should actually have more solidarity at home. And uh, I blame the upper a lot of the upper class for that. They're not reducing the rents. They're continuing like we're, we're just you know extracting the 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 wealth from the workers as normal. Um, I feel like the the rich and the upper class should do more to ease the burdens of of us that are not as fortunate. And, and, and I say that not for just for the UK, but it's for Austria and a lot of European countries. You know, a lot of people just think things are normal, but this is this is like a war economy. You know, <laughs> the UK they confiscated a lot of factories and things like that to for war production, and um, the rich need to do their fair share. Well, there are huge problems in the United Kingdom now. I mean, I lived in Prague for five years and um, I had to come back for a family emergency. Now I live in the UK again. Um, but my first feeling, my big feeling over the, having been home now for nearly two years is that nothing works in the UK. 
the leadership doesn't work, the local authorities don't work, the National Health Service doesn't work, the transport system doesn't work. There's very little opportunity for young people. Um, and there is an awful lot of um, untapped resources in young people that isn't being used because they've nowhere to nowhere to go, nothing to do with it. We've got um, a military that's got so small now it would struggle to defend Dover, let alone the United Kingdom. And without the support of all the other countries in Europe, it's uh, a very much a, a, a nothing. The Ukrainians have, have wiped out the equivalent of five British armies in the last two years. And that's, that's still casualty figures, conservative casualty figures, 332,000 now. Uh, Russian killed or, or seriously wounded. Um, that's equivalent of five or six uh, British armies. That's how weak it is. Um, and even now, having seen what's happened in Ukraine, um, the British government is still reducing the manpower in the British army. Um, and they say, oh, well, we're putting money into technology. But we've seen the technology working in Ukraine. It still needs the man in the trench. It still needs the man with the shoulder-fired weapons. It still needs the man carrying the gun. It still needs the man driving the tank. And yet they've still failed to deal with this obvious and out, out, you know, outrageous problem that they've got with reducing the British armed forces to lower and lower levels of manpower. And it's disgusting. Now, Ed, in your, your book, um, Slava Ukraini, that, you know, you, you would struggle to fill like one of the larger stadiums with the British Army. I think it was like 70,000 troops we had. Or yeah. Like well, if uh, Twickenham Stadium in West London, the rugby stadium, um, holds 82,000 people. Now, the British Army, uh, without reserves, consists of 68,000 uh, men and women now. 68,000. That fills uh, three sides of Twickenham Stadium, the whole British Army. Now, that's all force, all arms. Now, if you take that and take the teeth arms out of it, which are armour, infantry and um, artillery, you're probably going to get them down one side of Twickenham Stadium, all the members of those teeth arms, the fighting troops. Um, that's how small and weak and bloody useless it is to have an army that small. It was 175,000 when I joined in 1972, and now it's 68,000. And you wonder why the Russians are pushing? Well, they're pushing because we're perceived as weak. We don't scare them. And it's no good turning around and saying, oh yes, well, we've got nuclear submarines. You know, they only work as a deterrent. They don't work as a weapon. So what do you think the root cause of NATO being so flabby is? Lack of leadership in governments, lack of um, an understanding of war. Uh, there are not enough historians in government cabinets. Um, the focus is always on accountancy, on money, on balancing the budget. And yet um, there's never any attention paid to quality, to the quality that's required to defend the realm the quality that's required and the numbers that are required and the added benefits of having a large army because it's not just there to defend the country. It's a skills engine for the future as well. In, back in the 70s, the British Army used to train the plumbers, the cooks, the managers, the uh, electricians, the 
radio techs, the signalers. It used to train all these people, the car mechanics, the lorry fixers, the drivers, everything that went on later to become part of the civilian world. Um, instead, we started importing people from abroad to take on all those jobs. And now we don't have a skills base. We don't have an engine that creates and trains um, the tradesmen of the future anymore. We have to import them from somewhere else, which is sad. That's a great point, Robin. I think we see that quite a lot with Israel. You've got that three years, whatever it is, in the army. And the guys that come out there are really like world-leading entrepreneurs. And you know, I've, I've met a few myself. Those guys are really, that, that army training really accelerates their development professionally. Well, you go back to the 1960s and 50s even, and um, uh, before that, and the army was always a place to put disaffected youth as well. So you ended up with you ended up with an awful lot of young men who were rough, tough, adventurous, getting into mischief, and you put them in the army as as an option. You know, okay, you're going to go to prison or you're going to go in the army. Which one is it? And um, an awful lot of people who were the older generation when I joined said that's what happened to me and it's what made me. Um, you know, so there's an awful lot of benefits to having this rite of passage to manhood coming from national service or voluntary service uh, in an armed forces environment. Um, it helped me. I mean, I joined when I was 15 years old. Um, my home life had fallen to pieces. My education had followed. And uh, it was an opportunity that I took with both hands. And um, it, uh, it gave me a future which I would never have had otherwise. I think that definitely goes along a lot happens a lot in ukraine definitely now of course um mm. almost every fourth guy there is into some kind of martial arts i i myself was getting trained in boxing from you know 19 year old um just tough people there and very very um you know they're good at mechanics they're good at fixing things they're there they make excellent workers come to the uk working on building sites i wonder if we could turn around our nation robin I don't know. Um, what our nation seems to lack more than anything else now is leadership. Um, people in government don't seem to have a strategic vision of the future. They don't know what they stand for. They don't have a philosophy. Um, they're confused about whether they should be masculine or feminine or whether they're born in the wrong body, or whether they should be spending millions of pounds on um, pumping drugs into people to change their um, gender, um, instead of focusing on what's good for the nation. I mean, that's just one tiny thing. They're focused on um, you know, changing speed limits to 20 miles an hour in Wales, um, and spending a thousand pound per signpost to do it. Um, when people haven't got youth clubs, when people haven't got um, investment in young people, when they haven't got skills and trades and apprenticeships, but they'll they'll spend hundreds of millions of pounds on road signs to change um, to change the speed to twenty miles an hour in places where in the valleys where I live, it's almost impossible to drive more than twenty miles an hour in most of the small towns because all the cars are parked half on the pavement and half on the road. You know, you have to go very very slowly. Um, so there's an awful lot of pointless spending and political spending with people running around screaming about 
how the water in Wales belongs to Wales, but the power in England belongs to England and uh, all sorts of absolute drivel. Drivel's a wonderful word. Absolute drivel that comes out of politicians' mouths trying to divide people rather than trying to unite them and into things that they really believe in. Ah, sometimes you hate the world. <laughs> maybe maybe our enemies will, will die laughing at us at some point and then we'll be safe again. Yeah, well, um, I think Jesus says the meek will inherit the world, inherit the earth, but it won't be the meek, it'll be the hungry. It'll be the hungry that will inherit the world because they'll get angry and they'll get upset. And as the, the gap widens between the rich and poor, eventually if something isn't done, it leads to revolution. Yeah, definitely riches are something that the New Testament complains a lot about. And if you are rich, then you are in danger zone. And uh, the Bible actually commands the teachers to, to command the rich to, be, to share and I'm not, I don't think that should be done with, with taxes. I think it should be done personally because I don't think the tax system is efficient. But I think that we were all designed to give. And if we don't give and share, then we actually damage ourselves because it's one of the best things that we can do. One of the best things that we can do is to give. Yeah, you don't have to, um, you don't have to make rich people poor. But what you've got to do, if rich people are getting richer, then poor people need to get richer as well. Absolutely. You know, everybody, everybody's life needs to be improving. So you're not going to sit there and be resentful if last year, this year you can afford a better car than you did last year and you've managed to put some more money in your house and have a nicer holiday. Uh, you're not going to worry about the fact that um, um, some very, very famous or rich person is spending £500 on a bottle of wine at lunchtime. But there's something extraordinarily vulgar about the knowledge that somebody will spend £500 on a bottle of wine while somebody else has to work for two weeks as a checkout attendant in a supermarket to earn the same amount of money. I mean, that's, um, that's a real concern. And that's happening every single day. And there's more and more of it every single day as well. There are people now who um, are struggling to... They're making choices again between shoes and cornflakes for their kids. That's the sort of choices they're having to make. Yeah, and that those rubbish foods are, are, are obesity causing. You know, people, if you just can't buy anything organic and you're just buying ready-made field food, you're, you're going down to the co-op to find what the prices are reduced five times eating out-of-date food. You can't put on your heating. So, yeah, some people will put not put heating on all winter just so that they can, you know, save that that money. Um, yeah. And I think that a lot of – I blame a lot of big businesses and a lot of shareholders as well that control decisions of boards – where they will lobby the government <laughs> for visas to get people to come to the UK to undercut the British workers. And then that money is going to be going outside of the UK. So if a big business is coming, making money in the UK, they should be helping the British citizens by employing them. You know, why, why would you come to a country to make money from it and outsource people to come and, and work here? Taking, you know, undercut well, the jobs? well they, they do it because they're allowed to. And they're allowed to by the British government. Yeah. And so you've got to, you know, it's always follow the money, follow the vested interest, follow the people who benefit from that particular piece of policy or refusal to do anything about that policy. Um, a lot of the people that come in from abroad uh, work very, very hard. Uh, in fact, they work harder than an awful lot of British people are prepared to work. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're skilled, they're entrepreneurs, they build businesses, they pay taxes. 
and um, they do extraordinarily well. Um, but they benefited from a good education system or they benefited from growing up in a world where you don't uh, work, you don't eat. And so they come into an environment where everyone's sitting around going, well, I don't feel like doing that. I don't want to go pick out, pick potatoes out of the fields. Um, you know, um, so they'll jump in there. They'll take that opportunity and they'll build a future from it. Um, we've got a, a society that has failed in many, many aspects. Um, but an awful lot of it, again, is down to leadership. There's no leadership. There's no uh, sense of pride uh, being portrayed to people saying, come on, come on, follow me. Let's go out there and uh, let's go out there. Let's get the whole town out and pick the bloody apples off the trees. Come on, let's earn some money. Let's go enjoy ourselves. Let's um, let's make this summer something very special. Um, let's get out this winter and get fit rather than running around the bloody gym. Go out there and pick sprouts in the field. That'll get you fit. You know, if you've got no money and you want money, it's there for you. Um, let's let's go let's go and get it, boys. Come on, let's go and get it, girls. Um, no, everybody's well. There's nothing I can do. Isn't it sad? They don't want to work. Um, well. It's a, it's a bit of a messed up system. It's almost like you need a bloody catastrophe to get people to concentrate on what's important again. Robin, you're bringing tears to my eyes. You should definitely go into politics, man, and I, and I will be behind your campaign. <laughs> it, it's a biblical principle. If you do not work, you do not eat. And I'm all for giving and all that stuff. But if you are able to work and um, you choose not to, then by the own Bible, you shouldn't deserve to eat. And... Uh, and that's that's New Testament, unless you're sick, of course. You know. Yes, of course. Or, yeah, or yeah, old, absolutely. or old. Yeah. But yeah. It's a, right, right, right now is you know, there's a lot of people, old people. I mean, I'm getting there. I'm 66, um, and a, a lot of my grandchildren are actually um, relying on me to help them pay their bills at the end of the month. It's supposed to be the other way round, you know, but it's not. You know, a lot of young people now are buying houses courtesy of the bank of mum and dad because they can't get a deposit otherwise. Whereas when me and Heather first met 45 years ago, um, she was a barmaid. I was a private in the British Army. And we got 100% mortgage. And we managed to pay it. And it was less than three times our annual income. You can't do that anymore. Those opportunities aren't there. There's a lot of questions to ask as to why. Yeah, I think you it's know, sickening who... that we allow investments yeah. into property like that. Something like it's like <clears throat> investing the food or, or 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 the nation's food supply. You 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 jack up the prices because you you own the farms. Same thing with living or even with water. I just think it's obscene that that we allow investments into the into the private sector like this. Yep. Yeah. I had a I had a pharmaceutical executive to dinner with me in Prague once, who um, and I questioned him about the morality of the far, big farmer, and he said, "Well, it's not my job." to um, be morally said it's my job to make money and um, you know if, if, if a cure came along for cancer tomorrow um, or reduced the uh, need for surgery in many many cases um, the chances are we bought out of the system because it wouldn't be profit making so yeah. keep it hidden away yeah conspiracy theories uh, abound but um, you know the world's um, the world's a worrying place when the motive for everything is profit. So what is the solution? Leadership. It is leadership. It's moral leadership. 
And everybody's got an excuse, you know, oh, it's real politics. You don't understand the big picture. Oh, yes, I think I do understand the big picture. The big picture is profit. And um, how do you defeat that? Uh, politics now is a big marketing, camp marketing campaign for votes. It's not about decency. It's not about morality. It's not about working for the benefit of people. It's about working for to get into power. And when you get into power, then you have to pay the debts back to the lobbyists that, that funded you to get that, to get into power. Um, big business is important. Employment is important. Um, farming is important. Industry is important. But um, so is quality of life. Uh, when I lived in, when I lived in uh, Prague, um, quality of life, the wages were much, much lower than London. And yet the quality of life was much, much higher. And as one example, the um, <clears throat> transport system was so cheap that it was almost free to get to work. And when you got over 60, it was eight euros a month for me, for all my public transport. All the working people lived in the outskirts of the city and came to and from work on a weekly pass called a Latachka. And they didn't have to pay a day's wages every week to get to and from work. You work in London on, a, on, a, on a, the min national minimum wage, and I guarantee you're losing one of those five days wages just going to and from work every day. That shouldn't be the case. You shouldn't have to pay so bloody much to go to work. You know, it's public. It's a public transport system. It should be there to service the community, not to make a profit. So I will echo some of the calls on LinkedIn that uh, Robin form a, a political party. I think that's your next thing. We once once. Maybe you're from some kind of party in Ukraine. I don't know, man. But um, how how you feel? I know that you've had a rough cold. Yeah, I'd, uh, I get, I went to see, I went to my son's uh, wedding in Sweden, which was great fun. Um, place called um, Sonderheim, and um, uh, while I was there, on the way back, uh, we picked up a very nasty cold. So we got back, and um, my wife and I have been in bed for the last five five days, really. Oh. Uh, usually one of us is sick but at this time it was both of us so it was like who's who feels up to you know, making some tea who feels up to um, getting some water who feels up to walk to the shops and back to get the to get some more paracetamol um, but we're coming through it now um, going back to politics though um, politics is a young man's business it really is I think prime ministers should average about 50 to 55 because the stresses that are involved in looking after the worries of a nation are enormous. And um, the stresses of being involved in politics are enormous. One of our biggest failings in the United Kingdom, as soon as somebody decent gets up and puts themselves above the parapet on behalf of the people, everybody feels it's their right to shoot them to pieces. Um, nobody in politics is treated with any level of dignity or respect. They're all treated as criminals. So when you get good, we get the people we deserve, the thick-skinned, uncaring people, because nobody else can tolerate putting up with the nonsense. The, the abuse, I, um, I ran the Northern Ireland Veterans um, Movement for about eight years until we got uh, a paper through Parliament stopping the vexatious prosecution of British soldiers. And um, it wasn't the sabres of my enemies that were the problem. It was the, it was the daggers of my friends. It was the people that were supposed to be on my side fighting for the same campaign, making personal remarks, um, abusing my family, uh, posting lies online and so on. You know, it's um, 
that kind of environment. So you get what you deserve in politics. If you want decent people, then for us, a good start would be to treat them decently. Yeah, great points. When was your latest book published again? I'll just... uh, October. Yeah, it's been out to about uh, seven weeks now. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And um, it's had a very, very good response um, for a self-published book. Um, I needed to get it out there quickly. Um, the war's on now. I didn't want to sit back and hope that a publisher was going to take it, put it on their list and publish it and edit it in about 12 months' time. That wasn't going to do very much. So, yeah, it's out there. Um, Slava Ukraini, who dares shares. Glory to Ukraine and uh, who dares shares is pretty much my jingle at the end of most of my posts now. And it's an observational diary. Um, it's my observational diary about that uh, starts before the war when I'm screaming blue murder about 100,000 troops being on the um, Belarus border and they're going to come and the world turning around and saying, no, let's talk about Boris's Christmas party. Let's talk about Djokovic going, um, getting kicked out of Australia. Let's talk about the big orange monster in America. But let's not talk about Russia trying to cross the border and invade a sovereign state. Um, so um, I got so frustrated that I started to write about it every day. And eventually, you know, we've got this um, got this big following. Um, and uh, so I've collated the last the, the first 20 months of what's happened in that war from my point of view into Slava Ukraini. And the other book on the other side of the other side of my shoulder is my autobiography, which has been out for a long, long time now, Fighting Scared. It's actually a very unique book, the Slava Ukraine, because it was never really written to, in a sense to be a book in the first place. It was written for a no. purpose to defend Ukraine. So you've got a lot of passion in there and you're writing in a certain way that to people that have a short attention span, LinkedIn really limits <laughs> the amount of words that you can yeah. put there. So you've got a sort of like very emotional, honest, experienced viewpoint that's that's day by day and as you read it you i really felt a lot of emotions myself because i was i was in ukraine when when this mass invasion started and um you're, you're writing in, in that very targeted way to appeal to make it also very interesting for people to read because at linkedin you have to sort of capture people's attention to get engagement and you have yeah. some of the most the largest engagement certainly one of the few people that are getting between I don't know, several hundred to several thousand likes uh, per post. And and that's probably, uh, I don't know, between 100,000 and, or I would say between between 40,000 and up to a million views. So this, um, this is a very good historical record from a, a person who's very qualified to talk about it, being in thinking about war for, some, for so long. So thanks for well, doing that. Wonderful thing about the LinkedIn forum is that um, it limits you as somebody who's posting something to 1250 words so you can't elaborate too much you can't um bring in you're not writing an essay you're writing an opinion you're writing a commentary and um and and it has to it has to hit the mark quite quickly and quite strongly but say something important as well and um, it was the readership on linkedin coming back to me and saying you should do this that actually prompted me into uh, self-publishing the book um, and it was um, I mean Slava Ukraini who dare shares is my sixth book and each one is progression from the previous one you know there's always a learning curve about 
uh, things that you've learned and got wrong in the previous books you've written, and then you improve them and you work on them and then you get something better. So um, you know, it's, it, there's a great deal of uh, pride in and personal satisfaction in producing something like this. I did the cover. Um, uh, I sent the ideas to a friend of mine who helped me with um, one of my books, um, Warrior Poet Soldier Songs, Tommy Brabham in, in Prague. And um, he, I said, look, I, I want a tank. I want um, a Ukrainian tank at war. I want the flag in there. So we've got the blue upper case, upper upper level and the yellow lower level uh, portraying the Ukrainian flag. And um, and I said, what can you do with that? And uh, this is what he came back with. Um, but the whole thing is um, has, has been created um, by me. And, um, and I'm very pleased with that. And I'm very pleased with the response I've got from the people who have read it so far and the reviews that have come up. Yeah, I've, I've got it here on, on my Kindle and it's um, it's almost disappointing that I can't get it up to date, the latest, like the, the latest post, because you're still posting. It's not, so it's not like this is the end of it here. So I definitely um, would recommend collating the, like a version two of like you could have this, an update. I don't know if you update the original Kindle manuscript or you just make another version of it with like the certain dates. But um, yeah, keep <coughs> doing it, man. It's really encouraging your post. I mean, going to Ukraine. Well, I'm, well, I'm still, I'm still writing uh, on a daily, almost, almost daily basis um, about Ukraine. There are other things that come up now and then, and um, I like to uh, poke my finger in somebody's eye in a different direction uh, now and then. But um, it's important. I think it's the most important thing that's going on in the world at the moment. So um, if uh, if people want to get the book, they can get it on Amazon in all three formats. And if they want a signed copy, they can go to robinhorsfall.com and they can um, they can get a signed copy directly from me. Um, but, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, writing is um, is a thrill because it's a voice. Um, it's a voice for me, but I think it's also a voice for the people of Ukraine as well. And it gives them confidence that somebody over here is shouting on their behalf every single day. Yeah, I definitely um, recommend that you get a, a signed copy because you're not just getting a great book that's signed. You're you're investing in someone who's def actively defending uh, Ukraine in the inf information sphere. So think of it as um, the best forty pounds you've ever spent, <laughs> plus P and P, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, inflation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, like. Well, going back to politics, you're saying it's like a, a young a young person's game, but I think a lot of young men, they need, in a sense, I don't know if father figure is the right word, but they need to have strong men around them with strong ideals. I think the worst thing for young men is to be around this sort of woke mentality. It's just toxic. It's just this de demasculizing men for, for what reason, you know? And that's why we need more people like you. We need We need you to mentor people. I mean, maybe you're even mentor someone who gets into politics um, with similar similar ideals, good wholesome ideals, getting out into the fields, um, harvesting the potatoes, getting some proper exercise, coming home, pump full of testosterone. Um, you don't get that from sitting around an office. You don't get that from playing Xbox. You know, you you get that from working outdoors or or putting kitchens together. You know, so um, people shouldn't see that kind of work as as as, as low paid stuff. It's actually an investment in your health. You know, so and community. We, we one of the things we lack so much now is community. 
so many men they're just sitting home lonely because either their their other friends have all just become like tamed house dads and they're they're all sitting watching TV and that's all they have time for and they're so stressed out with their work and and men just don't don't get together much anymore but just they're just like demasculized isolated depressed middle-aged men and that's not what uh, what we were designed to be we're designed to to always have that male companionship and those kind of jobs working out in the fields um i mean those those soldiers in ukraine as much as it is dreadful being out in front lines they're forming incredible companionships friendships albeit they're losing some of their friends there and then it's i can't imagine but i would never want to go and fight in a trench um but our society is so split up and i think that's so many problems with our, our weakness well, yeah, there are, there are huge problems, and they start they start in government now, where um, an awful lot of emphasis is um, being placed on um, socially engineering the new modern man, and young men are not comfortable with that, but they don't quite know how they should and should not behave what they should and should not say. Um, there's an awful lot of boys from my experience, and I taught children for nearly 30 years, I taught them martial arts, um, who love to wrestle. They'll wrestle with each other, they'll wrestle with their dad. And they grow up in an environment now where somebody is uh, scolding them, chastising them for wanting to wrestle or fight with their brothers. Um, and yet that process builds personal confidence. It builds the confidence to know that you can take a knock and get up and carry on. It builds the confidence in your physical strength and you know what you can and can't do. Um, it gives you the confidence to stand up to authority when you're being challenged and not to be intimidated. Um, it's not necessarily, it shouldn't be enforced. It's not there for everybody. Some, some people are less inclined in that direction, but the majority of young, um, young men want to indulge in sport, want to indulge in uh, mischievous or uh, risky ventures. And um, if they're not given the opportunity to do that, then yeah, they're going to get depressed. They're going to get miserable. They're going to be lost. They're not going to want to know how they should prove themselves as an adult member of the human race because nobody's telling them this is what men do anymore. Um, I was lucky I... I was, I, from previous generation, I had mentors that basically said, stand up for yourself. If you don't, you're going to end up uh, being a whipped puppy at the back of the pile. Um, don't worry too much about what other people think. Worry about what you think of yourself. Um, and uh, fit in to a community without being subservient to it. Find a place for yourself. Um, sometimes it takes a long time. Um, but... Um, I think an awful lot of people um, find themselves unhappy and miserable in life because they don't know how to achieve any form of dignity or status anymore. Very valid points. I think we should also, as men, share our skills with other guys so that we can, you know, we shouldn't have to have like somebody sitting with a this wrecked, mouldy kitchen. You know, if if we have some friends that are that are able to sort of help help a hand and, and guide them and how to just do things, you can you can input like a one or two hours of your life, advise somebody on how they can go about making a kitchen, how to put some shelves together, going and actually showing them how to to fit a, a sink or even just make a cabinet. 
we have so many skills that we could be sharing and, and you know just it's so fulfilling to actually share what we could do our professions and and it's not it won't take any money from from people in businesses it's just if everybody has a more net sharing attitude then there's a small amount of money that you would lose and say less extra bits in business because maybe 10 percent people know a bit more about carpentry or, or joinery then but then you'd get benefits and other things that you're not skilled in you know like for some some legal help or some kind of medical help or nutritional help we just should be a more sharing society and we shouldn't be just binging all our wasting all our free time um allowing netflix to to, to program us we should be be we were designed to be communal people i'm not so sure that we were a, ever a, a more sharing society i think we were a poorer society in many ways so we relied on one another more so you you right. run out of money by the end of the week. So you'd borrow, you know, you'd borrow a cup of pasta off your neighbour. Um, yeah. you, you'd send one of your kids around to borrow two bob off your mum to buy a loaf of bread. Um, you know, so because we had less, we depended on each other more. And um, so is that sharing? I don't know if it's sharing. It's just a case of the fact that we needed each other. And uh, we didn't have fences between the houses. We had a strip of, a strip of wire um and the kids used to jump over the wire and play in each other's gardens um the wire was just there to mark where your potatoes ended and the, the radishes that were grown next door began um people build higher and higher walls between themselves the more money they have um you had industry as well you had people that worked in the pits you had people that worked in the factories so they were brought together by that particular process in their everyday lives and they had community centers um, where they all got together and danced and sang and drank and enjoyed their lives on a Saturday night with the limited amount of money they had. Um, now you've got people who have their telephone, their screen, their um, their link to Domino's Pizza and their television. And uh, they don't need to go out anymore. They'll communicate without ever talking to somebody for weeks. They'll sit at the same table in the same restaurant and communicate with each other in writing by text rather than actually indulge in a conversation. And if you get half a dozen people around a table, try getting their telephones off them and put them in the middle without touching them for the next hour while you have dinner and force them to speak. It's incredibly hard. It's almost, it's almost addictive, um, that screen. I mean, I have to actually take my laptop and put it over the other side of the room so that when the advertisements come on on the television, a commercial break comes on the television, I don't pick it up and look at it again during the commercials. I have to put it on the other side of the room so That's I don't very do that. interesting. That's very socially yeah. interesting because I would have thought that if you're in your 60s, you would have been well sort of trained in the normal way of human socialization that those technologies wouldn't become addictive. Whereas with me, I was sort of the first, I would say, 14 years of my life, I was sort of... I, I, there was no like Netflix, there was no like Xbox online, everything was social and you played the games to your friends in the him house, you still played football outside. Um, but we've sort of learned, we've sort of been trained to this whole, the Netflix generation. But that's really interesting that even yourself have yeah. come to the digital age. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's, there's also a thing, one of the things an awful lot of uh, corporations don't take into consideration John. is that there's a lot, a lot of old people that um, aren't uh, telephone and computer savvy. 
And uh, they're saying, oh, well, just do this on your computer. Oh, you just need to get this app. (laughs) You just need to use your telephone to uh, call the AA. You just need to. And they're going, I haven't got a phone or I don't know how to, what an app is. And uh, there's an awful lot of people stuck out there at the moment who are giving up on uh, technology and being isolated from an awful lot of services, services that you used to get by picking up the telephone or talking to a human being that they can't do anymore. Um, I got, um, I broke down my, I broke down in uh, mid Wales a few weeks ago and um, I had to get in touch with my son on my telephone to get me the contact number of the AA so that I could call the AA um, to, um, to come out to where I was because I couldn't figure out exactly where I was um, with um, Google Maps on my telephone. Um, and uh, fortunately, Alex helped me out. But, um, you know, it's, um, what if I couldn't have got, what, what if he didn't answer the phone? <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's a, a, different, a different world. You have to try and keep up with it. But uh, you get to a certain age where you can't. I think that's a symptom of our weakness is that we're not sociably together anymore. We're just all separate and we don't learn the value of community when everything can be done remotely, Zoom meetings. Um, this is a weak culture we've created, I think. Maybe we should mm-hmm. like have more kind of places where there's a digital detox. That would be a good market. A digital, a no, no phones, no computers holiday where people just sit and work on a farm or something like that that would be a good experience well i used to teach a uh, i used to teach a karate class in putney high street um on a wednesday night and um we used to go to the only bar afterwards we used to go to the only bar which did not have music it had no music it had no televisions and it had uh, benches and the place was packed until 20 past 11 every wednesday night because everybody was sat down sat around talking and they could hear one another. And it became one of the, fa- the favorite places to meet people of um, the opposite sex because you could actually have a conversation. Um, I don't know, I'm, I moved on years later, but um, I remember that was, it took you maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, it was the most popular bar on Putney High Street. Um, people talked. I like your idea there. I think that's great, you know, um, a uh, IT free zone. A social zone where you go in you have to hand your coat and your phone in and put it in a little box and lock it away um no telephones no laptops no nothing you go in there and um and you enjoy yourself with human beings until you leave yeah i would probably end up doing something like teaching survival skills because that's another thing that i get interested in i know you'll be an absolute expert in in living off the land that kind of stuff and um, we should do a podcast at that at some point maybe in person you'll we'll go out in the field and we'll practice our stuff just throwing that out there um well i've often i've often found my way in london by the sun i got stuck on <laughs> in, a, in a car stuck in a car in london thinking where the bloody hell am i well i know the river's south of here and um i'm going to uh, there's the sun so that's south i'm going that i'm going to turn left here and that'll take me back towards the river and i'll get my bearings again so even uh, even in a car in a city, survival skills can be very, very useful. You know your astronomy. Yeah, I, I was in Abu Dhabi um, last week, and I genuinely used this compass um, yeah. to help me navigate because uh, the, the, some, the, the app on the phone wasn't working very well. I could hardly see the blue dial. 
And sometimes even in London, when you go out from underground, the GPS is messed up for a few minutes. So you can be walking the wrong direction. So having a compass is actually still genuinely useful. Um, and just, just having a, a UK map, one to 150,000 know, size scale, you can still navigate from like England to, to Scotland if you had to um, without any uh, assistance, if you just know the basics of reading word signs. Um, but I, I, I might have, the amount of, when I brought this out in Abu Dhabi, we were, we were after, it was like a party. I had a long day. We had eating sessions and then we went to this, this bar afterwards. And the guys, I bought out this compass and the guys were, were laughing at me like crazy. Like I'm, I'm some kind of weird thing. And I was, I felt laughing at them because just like, it's so manly to be able to navigate with a, with a map and a compass. But nowadays that's, yep. people laugh at you for that kind of stuff, you know? Well, they shouldn't. Um, <laughs> you should never laugh at somebody for having more knowledge than you. Um, yeah. I can walk out the front. If the sky is clear here, I can find my way by the stars. Um, you know, it's not too difficult. Um, it's, um, they're not, they're not, I mean, you can actually use your watch to find north and south, uh, providing you can see the sun and you've got a shadow. Um, there are lots of different ways of finding direction, um, depending on which country you're in and whether the weather, what the weather's like. Um, but it's, um, there's, there's skills, um, staying warm, staying dry um finding food what's edible what's not edible they're all they're all there and readily available for people i mean one of the hardest environments to actually survive in is um is uh, northern europe in in the, in the winter and yet you can go to for example let me think you go to a, a silver birch tree um drill a hole in the side of it and um and the uh, sugary liquid that comes out will give you um will give you a food source so so there's all sorts of uh, there's all sorts of foods if you know if you know where to find them. Yeah, there's if you grow, I believe it's a walnut tree that has more calories per square meter than wheat field. And so I know one person who might come on a podcast who's going out planting around him walnut trees so that in the future, if there's a Mad Max scenario, he's got food from from walnuts because, I mean, in Ukraine that's like a staple food in wintertime. You actually go out. And you'll see it will be raining walnuts. So you'll be walking along the road, walnut tree crack, and the, they, they do you don't have to harvest them because the 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 fall on the right, they're protecting yeah, you yeah. them over winter time, you know. Yeah, right now you could be out there picking up chestnuts for free off the ground if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Sweet chestnuts. So you know, there are food sources. I mean, when I was a kid, my uh, grandmother and mother used to um box the potatoes, uh, not the potatoes, box the apples from the uh, end of the season, box them, wrap them in brown paper, and um, and they would uh, dry and grow very sweet and be preserved for the winter. We would pickle the onions, we'd pickle the cabbage, we'd uh, pickle the eggs, um, all the fruits of the summer um, and of the harvest. You know, you'd, you'd preserve them for the winter. It would be a normal process. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that, um, you know, some of the traditions, the traditional foods that we now buy from the supermarket at Christmas, uh, would be homemade. Yeah, I, I don't understand why our government are not teaching the population. It's just a matter of national security. Um, you know, homesteading. You know, if you have a little bit of land, teach them how to make a, a raised bed, how to harvest those apples. I've never heard of that method, by the way. I, um, the way I tried it was basically put the uh, sliced apples up and dry them in the sun, which takes quite a long time. Need a lot of sunshine for that, but that's quite an interesting method. But 
why why are we not teaching people? Why are we teaching people about all this woke stuff? We should be teaching them how to grow things, like you know, properly grow stuff and eat it, and teach them how to cook it as well. Um, there are a whole there's a whole generation of um, uh, people and young people in the United Kingdom who can't um, boil potatoes, who don't know how to mash potatoes, who who have lived their almost entire adult life uh, on microwave food. Uh, processed food um, and if you want um, to understand why people have health issues and obesity problems then a lot of it's down to what they consume and they're consuming consuming large amounts of processed foods I mean they've lost the joy of preparing food and of making food and to eating healthy food um, because they they don't understand it even if they do have access to it they'll spend more on a takeaway um, than they will on um you know, a, a whole bag full of vegetables that would last you three or four days. It seems like it's the fault of your generation in a sense, because I'm almost 40, so my eating habits would have been passed on to my kids. But it's your generation that would have taught my generation how uh, to... I don't think you should generalise about a generation. I mean, my, my wife cooks every day still. She cooks for all our kids. Right. She taught our kids to cook. You know, um, there are individuals who... Um, grew up in societies where um, I think the big change came when um, mothers suddenly found that they could only afford to live by going to work. So when I was a kid, um, a work, one working adult could feed a family. And then they brought all the mothers into the workforce. And you ended up with a situation where they thought they were all going to be better off. But what happened is prices went up. So then you got twice as many people working for the same amount of return, the same quality of life. But you've taken the mother away from the house. You've taken the mother away from the management of the children. You've taken the mother away from um, setting the standards of behavior for the entire family. And, um, you know, the preparation of food and creating that community around the table was part of the pro was part of the skill base that she had and imparted to her daughters especially but to her sons as well um you know and that disappeared and i think maybe it was that change more than anything else that took the those those um home skills away from um the next generation do you think people were happier back then when only one person had to work but you had much less technology than you have nowadays i think school children um were more secure i think they had they always had a safe place to go home to i think that they knew where mum was where dinner was um i think um mums tended to be the disciplinary disciplinarians in the house um dad came home and finished it off if it didn't work <laughs> um uh, there was um there was a, in my world, there was an awful lot of respect for women as something extraordinarily special um, who needed to be revered and treasured and looked up to. Um, that was my world. Um, I know there were exceptions. I know there were bad cases. I know that women uh, didn't get equal pay for equal work a lot of the time, which was unfair. But um, I'm not so sure sometimes that what some many of them gained uh, balanced out what they gave up i think we can probably entitle this podcast something like 
Ukraine and solving the Western first world problems <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, I mean, we've wandered off of Ukraine a lot. I mean, I don't think the uh, soldiers, the men and women in Ukraine are worrying about what gender they are at the moment, do you? No, I don't think so. No, I'm sure they're bloody not. They're and they're worried. both fighting. They're worried about when they're going to get the next bath after a month in the mud. And worried about or their fingers falling off. Worried they're about worried their... if they're going to be alive next week, yeah. Worried if their family is going to be with another guy because they're gone psychotic and they can't they can't have normal relationship with their wives anymore because they're so messed up and it's happening a lot. I mean yeah. 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 So uh, I think I sometimes think people get wrapped up in these um what should we call them? These issues um because they don't have anything really important to worry about in their lives. That's a good point, yeah. I mean, in Ukraine, there's no atheists. Um, when ministers go there to meet the soldiers, all the soldiers, they'll, they want to be like, anointed with oil. There's no atheists in the Ukrainian army. Well, still a very religious nation, always have been. Um, and uh, there's, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that either. Um, strangely enough, we all turn to God when we think we're going to die. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Is that the story? <laughs> yeah, my my late granddad was um, kind of made fun of people that were Christian because they were still going to like the doctors and all that kind of stuff. Saying, "Well, seven so great. Why are you why are you trying to avoid to go there?" And yeah, I don't I don't actually know if he ever believed in God when he passed away. But um, I don't. Know, life's life's more than just living to be as old as possible with the, with as much money in the bank as possible. Although sometimes people, you think people. He who wins is he who dies with the most money in the bank. And uh, that's a very sad and lonely place to die with lots of money, but no one loves you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I got a, I got a friend who said you should spend the last penny. He's 96 now. He said, Robin, he said you should spend your last penny on the day you die. It's just a question of timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah, I mean... God gets us all in the end. Uh, that's a guarantee. And um, you know, the idea that um, money is going to make more money is going to make a huge difference to your quality of life is wrong because enough money makes a difference to your life. Once you get past enough, it's just a bit of a, it's just another toy. It's just a different holiday. It's just a bigger car, but it's not going to make a huge difference to the quality of your life. In fact, it can be quite destructive because some people think it's a good reason to go out and find another sexual partner, um, which will also another way of screwing up your own life. <laughs> For one, that's a pun in there somewhere. <laughs> I think, I think um, well, there's two ways to define wealth. One way of wealth is how long you could survive without any money, and the wealth would be defined in that at a certain time period. Another way you could define wealth is, is when you die, how many people fondly remember you and miss you? Yeah, um, I think I can probably, if somebody said, how wealthy are you? I said, well, I'm very wealthy because I've got a handful of very close personal friends. I've got a wife I've been with for 45 years. I've got five kids, 10 grandchildren and uh, six great grandchildren and another one on the way. And, um, you know, 
all the problems that go with that um, are worth it, you know, because there's always an element of love that comes back in return for that. You know, it's um, it's those are those are the important things. But it's nice to have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robin, I won't take any more of your time because you've got all those grandchildren and family waiting for you and you've got your LinkedIn daily posts. But um, thanks very much for your time again, Robin. It's always great to talk to you. Um, is there anything you want to leave us with um, for the next few weeks when it comes to Ukraine and the world in general? Yeah, keep an eye on it. Keep telling your representatives that they should pay more attention to Ukraine and that they should be supporting it. And uh, if they want their votes next time round, that's where they need to be pointing their focus. Um, you want to follow me, um, you can find me on Google, find me on robinhorsfall.com. Thanks, Robin. And thanks for watching, everybody. And uh, please invest in uh, the free world's future by investing in a signed copy of one of his books. Um, he deserves it. Thanks for your time, everybody. See you later. Cheers, Nick.